Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Hello and welcome to this ninth bonus episode of Unfinished Shoebury's Lost Boys with me, Charles Thompson. In episode six, we heard how the former Essex police commissioner Nick Alston had been instrumental in securing an official review of the 1989-90 investigation into the Shoebury paedophile ring. But just a couple of months after that review was launched, Nick Alston left office, having decided not to seek a second term. So after all eight episodes of Unfinished had been released, I recorded an interview with Alston to get his reaction to the many developments which had occurred after he left office. Shortcomings in the review that he had helped to secure. The discovery of ringleader Dennis King's apparent status as a police informant and his thoughts on a damning report by Essex Police's Internal Affairs Department, listing a series of failures into its most recent investigation, or lack thereof, into the ring. The following conversation with Nick Alston was recorded on Tuesday, August the 11th, 2020. One of the things that you became known for, really, during your term in Essex, was your commitment to transparency, which was you know, huge, really, in terms of the, it was you that instigated the publication of regular reports about police misconduct. It was you that started the uh, regular scrutiny meetings where the chief constable would be required to answer unfiltered questions from the public. At what point did the importance of transparency become clear to you? And what impact do you think that had on the force? I think probably it was always clear to me that transparency is a good thing. I think, you know, in this country, we, for a whole host of reasons, we've grown up with, you know, in many areas, a default position of secrecy in government. And uh, and I'd worked, you know, one stage of my career, I I was seconded to, um, you know, the British Embassy in Washington. And you see that there are other ways of of doing government. You can do government where, you know, you can kind of ring up anybody and speak to anybody and you can get at data much more easily. I think if we're trying to build confidence in our public institutions, that transparency is an integral part of that. You know, how can you be really confident about an organisation when they're coy about what they're doing and they won't let you see data? Um, I think the, you know, generally in, in, in Britain, it's something that, that um, you know, we're behind best practice in. So, uh, that was that was one aspect. I think particularly with criminal justice, there are so many myths around um, uh, and it becomes a sort of binary thing, you know, the police are good or the police are bad. Well, the, the police are neither good nor bad. They're the same as any other organisation. They've got strengths and they've got, the, you know, they've got a, a, and different challenges. And I think if you're going to improve any organisation, it's best to get the facts out there um, and try and you know, understand where improvement can be made and demonstrate that you're doing it. That these are public organisations. We fund the police. The police are very keen of saying, aren't they? You know, the old Peelian principles, they, you know, they're of the people, they're policing the people, but they're of the people. Uh, well, you know, um, then take that to um, its logical conclusion and they're going to be very open and they should be able to give account of themselves. So I, I think, you know, my default position is towards transparency. Um, 
did the police find it uncomfortable? Um, I'm pretty sure in some cases they did, you know, exposing some of these things that have gone wrong is deeply uncomfortable. You know, Essex police, I am sure, found it very hard to find two of their colleagues facing trial at the Old Bailey um, from failures uh, in a child abuse investigation team. That's a pretty grim place to be, but so much better for them. I, my genuine belief is to have gone through that and confronted those issues, come through it hopefully with, with, with learning as much learning as they could from those things. Are, are they likely to be better I think the answer is yes. Did they enjoy it? I'm, I'm pretty sure in some cases the answer would be no. I think it's not just Essex, but a number of forces that have had slightly more, I think, rigorous scrutiny have faced up to some of these challenges. I suspect in some areas, some around the country, there are still forces who still haven't confronted some of the shortcomings of the past. Uh, I think you're right when you talk about Britain as a country just having a culture of secrecy, there's something that jumps out at you when you listen to, for example, a true crime podcast like this, which is made in America. What you will hear the host saying is, well, we wanted to know what went wrong. So we went down the police station and got a copy of the whole investigation file. Or we went down to the courthouse and got a copy of the entire court file with all the evidence and all the witness statements and so on. And that's something that in the UK you just cannot do. Um, we do not have the openness and transparency that they do in, for example, America, as you cited. Do you think that is an area where the UK is lacking? Or do you think that, the, that America, for example, gives away too much information? I don't think I want to focus it particularly just on, on, on America, um, but that is an example where they are much more transparent, much easier to get at data, much easier to speak to people. Seeing the, the hoops that journalists have to jump through to get freedom of information requests um, and the bureaucracy around answering that, um, it just seems to me to be largely wasted effort. A lot of that data it would be much better to see it in the public domain from the get-go. Of course, there are some areas that need to be protected. Every country needs to protect secret stuff. But a lot of the stuff is, it is hidden at the moment, I think is hidden to avoid bureaucratic embarrassment. And I, you know, that, that does worry me. Um, getting the right balance is tricky. It's not an area I've deeply studied, but I think the balance at the moment is, is wrong. I think, you know, unquestionably in my view, yes. Um, and so we try to make it the default position um, to publish this information. You, you referred to the information from the professional standards department the P psd as it's shorthanded that that's the bit of any police force in essex uh, the psd they're the ones who investigate you know complaints against the, the police um, um should should the public have some visibility into that yes I, i'm sure they should not to hound individual officers but to firstly gain confidence that these things are being dealt with by by the police and to have some idea of the scale of the problems. Uh, I can't remember precisely the figure, but I think in the first two years that the chief constable the, who I appointed to Essex was in place, more officers were in effect thrown out of Essex police in, in those first two years than had, had been dismissed in the previous, I think six or seven or even eight years. Now, had suddenly everything gone wrong? No, I think that what you were getting was a chief constable who was being required, though that was my role, I was holding him to account to run a professional police 
reports of police service. He was doing it well, and the consequence of that was that officers who were not up to the required standard, who were um, uh, found through proper process to have, uh, you know, to have not fulfilled their duties um, in terms of gross misconduct, you know, numbers of those left the force. And as, as we observed before, some even finished up in the criminal justice system being tried and going to, to prison. And now you've left Essex, um, the Essex Police and Crime Commissioner role, you're working with the National Crime Agency, is that right? I'm a non-executive director on the board. Yes, I, there was an open competition for that. And I'm one of five non-executive directors there. Um, and I'm just coming to the end of my four-year term. I'm pretty sure it was late 2015 when you first met Robin Jamieson and um, early 2016 when he came back in to meet you and the Chief Constable and he brought with him Rob West and Jenny Grinstead. If you just wind back to then, what were your initial thoughts about this case and about Rob Robin and, and Jenny? I mean, I've got a pretty good recollection of the meetings, funnily enough. I mean, they, they were compelling. The first meeting with Robin, I was, I was really pleased to meet him. I found him convincing. And given that what we've learned about the activity of paedophile gangs up to, right up to the current time, this isn't just a, you know, it's not just a historical issue, is it? You know, these gangs, they may morph, it may look different in different places, but there have been paedophile gangs operating probably forever. And certainly that, you know, period in the 70s and the 80s, you, we'd, we'd learned a lot. We'd come through the learning from Savile, uh, from Jimmy Savile and the awfulness of that. Um, I had begun to get an insight into this world I knew nothing about before I took on this role. Um, and, you know, I am utterly convinced that, you know, the, these awfulnesses were going on. And the most compelling thing for me from those meetings was the horror that there were probably 60, is it as many as 70 victims, uh, you know, from that um, 1980s, late 1980s, Shrewbury paedophile ring, who were deserted by the state, deserted by those who should have some responsibility for them. And however we look at it now, whether we, you know, that however we try and understand how they were, were those those mostly boys were regarded by the by the police. But when you then realise that some of them were, you know, they were ten or eleven or even younger, the, these were people who'd been deserted um, by all of those who should be caring for them. And I found, and that's the thing that stayed with me actually all the way through, um, Charlie, is about, you know, okay, we can look at, point to all the inadequacies, the failings, the whatever else was going on with, with the police. But those victims and, and going through the list of what happened to those um, boys, those who were dead um, from suicide or drugs, um, uh, drug abuse, the few, thank God, who'd made it through into relatively relatively normal lives, but the many whose lives have been wrecked. Um, that's what stayed with me. And it stayed with me in a whole raft of things I've learned about policing is actually about the, the impact on the victims. I remember being in your office the day before the um, announcement was going to be made, that this review was taking place. And that's exactly what you said to me, that the most horrific part of it for you was um, the victims and what had happened to them and, you know, how some of them were now dead or drug addicts, homeless, that kind of thing. 
because you were also coming to the t- the end of your term as commissioner at that point, and you said to me that in your whole term you couldn't think of anything you dealt with that was more important than this case. And, um, you know, when I was putting the podcast together, I realised that both you and I, compared to what we now know, had a very limited understanding of the case because new witnesses have come forward, new documents have been found, a lot more stories have been uncovered of, of what was going on back then. And I just wondered, after listening to the series, listening to the podcast and catching up on all this new information, just how your perspective has changed? At one level, we've got you know um, a bit more insight into why some of the decisions... And, and and let's be clear, I think pretty grim reasons why some of the decisions were taken, um, you know, in terms of pursuing the prosecution or what happened to the you know, to the offenders. And, you know, we've got a little bit more insight into you know, the very risk averse position that the county council were taking probably in terms of liability, uh, you know, the, the bringing other forward, you know, bringing further victims, um, getting them involved. Every bit of that helps a little bit. Does it ultimately alter, you know, the, the, the scale of how I think back to those times and what happened? At one level, I'm not sure it does hugely because the damage was done, whatever it was now, 30 years ago. And seeking to understand what happened is important. Is it kind of materially important in terms of, well, do I think radically differently about about how dreadful that time was and the approach of the authorities generally, police, county council, social care, the media, um, you know, all the people who might have done more digging or more following up. Did anybody care about this um, at the time? We all, thank God, we all now care a hell of a lot more. We all learned a lot more. Is it is it good to unearth these stories? Is it good to go after the bad guys? Is it good to seek to, um, to seek to offer compensation to those affected? Look at the case today. Um, didn't I wake up to the news? Did you hear it this morning as we record this interview? Somebody who's just been um, awarded the first in excess of a million pounds for a, a child abuse victim from 1989, from that same year, not here in Essex, but elsewhere in the country. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a long and slightly confusing answer to your question. But, you know, I... I we know it was awful and we're getting more details about how it was, why it was awful and, and, and the rest of it. Um, do I, do I think materially different about, about the case? Probably only, you know, less than you might imagine, Charlie, I think is what I'm saying. You left office in 2016, really just a matter of weeks after the review was announced not an investigation, there was a subsequent investigation, I'll come to that shortly, but in terms of the just the Essex police agreeing to go back over the old case and review the way in which it was handled and see whether there were any lessons that could be learned, whether there was any evidence of anything that had gone terribly wrong. What were your hopes for that review and the way it would be conducted after it was announced? Well, the same with... with with anything that I instigated, I, you know, I hoped things would be done professionally, um, you know, with a degree of commitment. I think um, I hoped apart from anything else, you know, we've got professionals, we'd got three professionals who'd been carrying this burden of 
anxiety all their lives about you know what had happened and had the right things been done i thought it was absolutely right to respect their commitment to come forward and to share their concerns and to you know for that review to have a look and see you know what was what were the prospects of of you, I mean, you say lessons learned i'm not, i'm not sure that's again exactly where i was but you know it, you know in terms of victims you know were had the right things been done to identify the victims were there obvious things obvious shortcomings that the police should get their heads around and, and do something about either in terms of investigation or something else you never know when you take the lid off a problem you never know what you're going to find so i think i had an open mind um i hoped um, and expected it would be done professionally and um you know, I was pleased to have got to that point. Okay, so 18 months later, approximately, it's announced that the review has concluded, and the conclusion of the review is that there's no evidence of corruption. Now, in the show, in the podcast, we hear some concerns about that finding. Firstly, that the police freely admit that all of their files on the case are gone, so they're working with a limited amount of contemporaneous evidence. Now, the other thing uh, is that you know they were they were handed some contemporaneous documents right at the beginning, around the time of your meeting with the chief constable, and those documents contained various names of other professionals who had worked on the case. And as I, after the review had concluded, continued my investigation. I start finding the people whose names are on these documents and discovering that this police review has not caught up with these people. Not only that, but these people are sitting on quite a large amount of contemporaneous paperwork, which presumably would have been of of use to a review into the case. So having learned that in the podcast, do you have a view as to how thorough that review was and whether it was thorough enough? Um, well, really hard for me to 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 answer that, as you as you've said. You know, very soon after that, um, I stepped down as PCC, and so I've got no insight. I've got no first-hand insight into, you know, how thorough the review was. I mean, your podcast make a compelling case that it was not as thorough as we would have wanted. I would have wanted it to be um, if if those documents named uh, other professionals uh, who might have had, uh, well, as you proved, did have um, contemporaneous documents and knowledge of the case, uh, for that not to have been pursued is, is, you know, at best disappointing. Now, another thing that comes out of that, one of these people whose name the police were given in early 2016, when you were putting this review together with the chief constable, I find them, they possess a lot of paperwork, including this document, this set of minutes from a meeting between the charity and the police, in which the police officer Bob Fuel tells the charity that Dennis King is a police informant. In light of that revelation, which came after the review had concluded, are there grounds, do you think, for another review? Does that change things significantly from your point of view? Um, again, from the outside, do I do I think the fact the offender was a was a, a an informant? Do I think it's likely to have been known even to the first review? You know, my guess is it it is likely to have been known. Um, 
if it wasn't, then you know it raises more questions about the, you know, the competence of police records. But we know, you know, again, it's thirty years ago. Um, systems have changed several times since thirty years ago. But it does help, you know. If if all of this, and I have no reason to doubt it, it is true, the the guy was an offender. Does it help explain? the whole um, journey of that case through the criminal justice system, you know, it absolutely does make sense. Not only then, but the subsequent offending that you drew attention to in your podcasts. Um, does, it, does it invalidate the review um, almost less so than the, the, than the previous case? The fact that there were, you know, there were, there were leads to those who were involved with contemporaneous records, the fact they weren't followed up feels to me to be more compelling, of more compelling concern. But from the outside, really hard to call. Now, one of the things that you oversaw in your time as commissioner was Operation Maple. Operation Maple was the investigation into the North Essex Child Abuse Investigation Team, where a number of problems were alleged and investigated. And as you alluded to earlier, two officers ultimately ended up facing criminal charges and were successfully prosecuted. Just as the final episode of the podcast, well, we'd, we'd made it, it was ready to go out, and then Victim 6 gets his report back. So Victim 6 had made a complaint to the Independent Office for Police Conduct, which had been referred to Essex Police's internal professional standards department. And this report comes back just at the last minute with a, a number of failings. Um, highlighted. So just to run through the key findings in this PSD report, nobody contacted victim six after he came forward um, and it took him making a complaint almost two months later before he was actually contacted by officers. When they did make contact, his case was assigned to an inexperienced junior officer who was then not supervised the investigator found inexcusable delays in the interview process which meant that by the time the interviews concluded, Dennis King had died. Victim 6 had made allegations against a retired police officer. Those were never logged as a crime on the system, and leads about that officer were not pursued. And his allegations against other abusers were also not properly investigated. Um, and there's a whole list in the report of lines of inquiry which were never pursued. Now, having been the commissioner who oversaw Operation Maple, you would hope that the force would be really endeavouring to operate at the, the peak of its abilities in terms of child abuse cases. Now, how does it feel to you to hear about the conclusion of this professional standards department report? You know, the chief constable was responsible for Operation Maple. Um, of course, I was closely alongside him, understanding it. it um, but my role is only to see the, the chief constable. Um, am I disappointed to see um, these findings? Well, there, of course I am. Um, but it's worth saying, isn't it, that there's Essex police professional standards who are making these um, these findings. and it's a good thing that Essex Police is able to look into itself and find these faults. And, and I would be hope you know, those faults will be addressed. You then get back to the issue we've talked about before, um, you know, that the child abuse investigation teams are incredibly hard pressed with current work. Anybody just has to read the papers at the moment to, to understand 
you know how many cases there are both of child abuse of all sorts particularly online offending but um, sexual offending generally there are very large numbers um, and is that prioritization going on day by day it almost certainly is so if i was um, the police and crime commission i would be wanting to understand in some detail why the situation had arisen um, from the outside uh, i would um, expect to see that those workload issues were, were, would be part of it and not only might this be a you know seen as a low priority but again offending that took place 30 years ago compared with offending that takes place now I know where I would draw that priority but I would still expect the cases to be done professionally so am I disappointed that Essex Police PSD found those failings yes of course I am you know but I know how hard it was and probably remains to do that scrutiny work. When a report like this comes in from professional standards department do you think that the the police well now the police fire crime commissioner is there a role for the PFCC here to intervene or to be uh, looking to scrutinize what's going on or is this an area that PSD is should be it should just be left to them there absolutely is a role then for the police and crime commissioner or the police fire crime commissioner to say to the chief constable in 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 the course of the routine review of the work of PSD we you know my team I and my team met regularly with the head of PSD to discuss these cases to understand the findings and what was being done as a result of it not to intervene but to understand it my job was to to make sure the chief constable was running you know a, a, an organization that was doing all of this work properly stuff is always going to go wrong there are always going to be failings in any human system um, the, the job of PSD is to to rigorously investigate those the job of the chief constable is to make sure that the right action is taken the job of the, the police and fire and crime commissioner is to make sure that he that the chief constable is doing all of that that so is there a role for the PFCC absolutely there is um, and you know I'd, I'd be interested to know how this has worked through just so I'm clear on what you're saying if you were the PFCC today and this PSD report was published what would be your immediate action well uh, immediately i might not immediately see it because the report would be an internal report but in my routine uh, review of the work of psd with the chief constable or with his often it's the deputy chief constable who is responsible for the work of of psd i with my team i, I think i went i led most of those meetings myself but my my team would be scrutinizing the papers I would want to understand why this has happened and what he was going to do about it and then seek reassurance that, that this is not an isolated problem or is it is it indicative of a more systemic problem and that's the way you improve organizations if you find something's gone wrong you check across an organization and you see well you know could it could it be happening in in other in other areas it was it a one-off was it you know a new as you said it's a new officer had they not had good enough supervision um you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know the detail. I haven't seen the report. I, I don't know. But um, I would be expecting the chief constable to give an account of, of you know, his understanding of what went wrong and what he's done about it. And finally, just in your view, what should happen next? So we have a victim who has come forward. Case was closed with no action. But now we've had a report suggesting that the investigation was not conducted properly. In your view, what is the next step? That depends, Charlie, I think, on what precisely the, the report says. You know, my, my, 
my, my experience is limited. It's only, you know, he did the job for, for, you know, for three and a half, four years. But my experience is that if victims are really engaged with by the police, I mean, it, it kind of helps everybody. It's not, you know, if victims get a chance to, to, to meet with the police to have the explanation of what's happened, that goes a long way towards, um, you know, starting to heal some of the hurt that can be caused and you know there's no doubt that you know, you know through your podcast you know victim six was hurt by what Essex police did um it was not it was a clumsy it was a clumsy bit of work it appears from the outside and I, I, again I make that, that that comment I don't know the full facts but to understand you know and also what the options are you know if the um, you know the offenders are dead it, there may be less options open if their offenders still at liberty we're still we aren't we we're seeing people convicted of offenses many years ago some people think that's wrong personally i i, I don't think it is wrong but the, the the prosecution of those offenders has to be balanced against you know the harm that they've done the 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 chances of success, successful outcome of a prosecution and indeed how that stacks up against trying to stop current offending it's not a straightforward it's not a black and white issue but do i think that um, it should it, it it deserves some further explanation on the face of it from what you've told me i think probably yes thank you very much thank you for listening to this episode of unfinished it was written by me charles thompson and edited by tom bristow if you'd like to support our work please visit presspatron.com forward slash unfinished podcast html all money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.